0: Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, the New York State Legislature is meeting this afternoon to pass sweeping new legislation to legalize marijuana. A closely watched union election in Alabama comes to a close. New York's 50,000 incarcerated persons are now eligible for COVID-19 vaccines following a court order. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. In the news today, the New York State Legislature is meeting this afternoon as we speak to pass sweeping new legislation to legalize marijuana and create a legal market for cannabis and cannabis-related products.
1: We've definitely come a long way from, you know, 2010, 2011, the height of the Michael Bloomberg era, when... There were more than 50,000 arrests for simple marijuana possession. That's possession of a really small quantity or smoking on the street to today when the state legislature is voting on and likely to approve legalizing.
0: That was Stephen Wishnia, the Independent's longtime drug war correspondent. He will join us after the headlines. He will talk more about the new law, which Governor Andrew Cuomo has vowed to sign and what legalization could look like here in new york while governor cuomo prepares to sign a long-time progressive priority into law he also faces allegations of sexual harassment from a 10th woman on monday sherry Ville of greece new york described being forcibly kissed by cuomo in her own home the incident occurred when he visited the area following a 2019 flood Ville provided a cell phone photo her son took at the time of cuomo kissing her in her living room while he towered over her
2: He said, that's what Italians do, kiss both cheeks. I felt shocked and didn't understand what had just happened. But I knew I felt embarrassed and weird about his kissing me. I am Italian, and in my family, family members kiss. Strangers do not kiss, especially upon meeting someone for the first time.
0: Both New York State Attorney General Letitia James and the State Assembly continue to pursue investigations into the sexual harassment allegations against Cuomo. In labor news, the closely watched union election at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, wrapped up yesterday. Both sides now await the results. Amazon, a $1.6 trillion corporation, spent millions of dollars to dissuade the nearly 6,000 workers at the warehouse from unionizing. Um,
3: So Amazon is really willing to do anything to keep a union drive out. And and that even includes sort of operating in in the gray areas of the law um, where, you know, they think they can get away with stuff that might end up being illegal down the road.
0: That was Lauren Gurley, a labor reporter for Vice, who has covered Amazon extensively. She will be joining us later in the show. More than 3,000 research and teaching assistants at Columbia University are entering their third week of a strike after two years of unsuccessful negotiations with the school over their union's first contract. Graduate student workers are demanding fair wages, expanded health care, and child care provisions, as well as neutral arbitration in cases of sexual assault and harassment. Now 16 days into their strike, union members say Columbia has threatened to withhold pay for those on the picket line and is spreading anti-union messaging to students. Colleen Boblitz, a member of the Graduate Workers of Columbia Union, spoke with us about the strike.
2: Student workers in GWC have been on strike for three weeks. We were left with no other option after bargaining with Columbia for over two years as they still have yet to offer us a fair first contract. We held rallies, collected high turnout, over 2,000 signature petitions, and provided gut wrenching testimonies from student workers, but they weren't enough for Columbia. We were left with no other option but to strike for fair wages and basic workplace protections. We're keeping up the energy on our ticket line thanks to support from our students, faculty, and our broader community, and we're committed to staying strong until we win the strongest possible first contract.
0: Colleen Boblitz will be joining us later in the hour to discuss the Columbia graduate student workers strike. In pandemic news, President Joe Biden announced Monday that 90% of Americans should have access to vaccines by April 19. The news comes as public health officials are becoming increasingly concerned the country is on the verge of a fourth wave of the pandemic as many people relax their use of masks in the mistaken belief the coronavirus has been defeated. This is Center for Disease Control Director Rochelle Walensky speaking Monday on CNN. I'm
2: going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, And so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared.
0: Here in New York, everyone 30 and older is eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccination effective today. The development comes as infection rates remain stubbornly high in a number of New York City neighborhoods. Don't miss your shot at a shot. For the latest info on where to sign up in New York City, see TurboVax.info on the web. Again, that's TurboVax.info. And finally, a judge has ruled that the Cuomo administration must begin offering vaccines to all of the roughly 50,000 incarcerated persons in New York's prisons and jails. The incarcerated are considered to be at a very high risk of COVID infection due to the crowded indoor settings they live in. This is Jose Saldana, director of Release Aging People from Prison.
1: And we welcome the court intervening on this matter. And it's not surprising to us that every time there's a health crisis in New York State prisons, The courts always have to intervene for incarcerated men and women to get adequate adequate, uh, medical care and treatment.
0: When we return after this short break, we will look at the rolling back of New York's drug war as the state legislature votes today to legalize marijuana. The Little Help from My Friends, written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney and performed by Joe Cocker with Jimmy Page on guitar. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by my Indie colleague, Julia Thomas. Julia, it's great to have you joining us as co-host.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, John. Um, It's great to be with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org.
0: Yes, and in our first segment, uh, New York is on the verge of enacting historic legislation to legalize marijuana and create a legal market for it to be bought and sold. Legislative leaders and Governor Andrew Cuomo reached a framework agreement last week. At this very moment, it's being considered by the state Senate, where the Democrats hold a large majority. Our next guest, Stephen Wishnia, is well-versed in the subject, to say the least. He's covered it for years. But before we go to him, Julia, I understand you were poking around on YouTube last night and found a clip from an infamous propaganda film from the 1930s called Reefer Madness.
2: Yeah, that's right, John. I I watched this film last night, and it's a really fascinating sort of reflection of this, you know, kind of government-backed, you know, uh, uh, hysteria and fear that was created around marijuana. Um, Reefer Madness came out in 1936, one year before the U.S. government listed marijuana as a dangerous narcotic. And listening to this clip is really a reminder of how anti-weed hysteria got going, and we're only now disentangling ourselves from it. Here's the thought. You and all
1: the school parent groups about the country and you must stand united on this and stamp out this frightful assassin of our youth you can do it by bringing about compulsory education on the subject of narcotics in general the dread marijuana in particular that is the purpose of this meeting ladies and gentlemen to lay the foundation for a nationwide campaign by you to demand by law such compulsory education. Because it is only through enlightenment that this scourge can be wiped out.
0: Well, it took uh, way too long, but a change is finally coming. Joining us today to talk about it is Stephen Wishnia. He's covered the drug war for many years for The Independent and other publications. He's also the author of The Cannabis Companion. Steve, it's great to have you on the show with us today. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks. Sure. So, uh, um, from your perspective, what are, what are the uh, most important elements of this uh, legislation, uh, and, and and how good of a job do you think it might do in in, in addressing concerns about racial equity and um and, and and ensuring that legalized marijuana in New York won't be controlled by a handful of big corporations? Uh, what are what are the odds for this looking like?
1: Well, I'd say the biggest thing is just that it legalizes it. You know, it was only 10 years ago that we were in the Michael Bloomberg stop and frisk era where there were, you know, 50,000 people a year getting arrested for either possession of very small quantities of pot or smoking on the street, the overwhelming majority, you know, young Black and Latino men. So, you know, in 10 years, we've gone to voting on legalization. So just that it's legal, it's going to set up a legal market is the biggest thing. How effective it's going to be at you know, keeping it from being dominated by corporations. I don't know, there are provisions in it. Uh, one is a goal for 50% of licenses for businesses. To go to equity applicants, uh, there's some efforts to uh, limit, you know, the number of large operators. There's a ban on vertical integration, except for micro businesses, which is the way alcohol is regulated in New York State since prohibition has been. You can either be a manufacturer, a brewer, or a dealer. You can be a distributor like a beer distributor, or you can, is that if you have a a microbrewery, you you know, have a pub in it where people can, you know, drink sampled beer. And that's the way uh, this law is going to be structured. So you don't have, you know, doing all three levels. Cuomo several years ago. Right,
2: uh, right. And, and Stephen, I'm I'm curious also what you think about you know, um, just when thinking about you know what the product cycle of legalized marijuana will look like. Um, you know, from the grow room to the dispensary. Can you describe to us what um, what that will look like based on what we've seen in other states?
1: Uh, I don't know yet. I. Uh, you know, but it's obviously it's grown, and there's fairly high security requirements. Uh, you know, one of the things about being legal is that growing indoors takes an incredible amount of electricity because people are using you know 600 watt light bulbs, thousand watt light bulbs to simulate sunlight, and which uses an incredible amount of electricity. Uh, but if it if security requires it to be grown indoors uh, that's where the facilities will be also for year-round operation in New York State where there's it winter it'll have to be indoors uh you know then it's processed then it'll be distributed and then it'll be retailed so you know it's a three-step system the regulation there are other states such as Colorado that require you know every step to be videotaped you know so that nobody pockets it and it's not being diverted elsewhere. That's something that's going to increase costs and probably make it harder for small operators to be involved rather than large companies because, it, you know, you, you have a whole video camera on your garden that's going to cost a lot of money.
0: Right. And uh, can you talk about the, the provision that would allow uh, people to grow as many as uh, six plants uh, on, on their own. Um, you know, what, what What are the prospects for that? Is that something that maybe will be of more use to people outside the city?
1: And probably. I mean, you know, people outside the city have backyards and gardens. They might have a bigger house so they could put a light in their closet. Uh, you know, that's sort of a perennial you know, area of contention and legalization bills. It's one of the things that Governor Cuomo opposed. And you know, one of the things that sank you know marijuana legalization in 2019. I remember I wrote an article for the Independent probably January or February two years ago that said the question is not if but when, but how. And the issue of how sank it. And one of the issues was, you know, whether home growing should be allowed. So that's in, you know, six plants is not a whole lot, but you know, if you want, you can. Uh, it probably make more of a difference outside of the city where people have more space to garden. I don't know if, you know, you're gonna people in like community gardens are gonna be planting, you know, three pot plants for one thing. If it's out in the open, you know. People can steal it
2: pretty easily right and and Stephen, thinking about I guess sort of this you know the toll of this war on marijuana, you know what has that been what is the what is the impact of that kind of um, war on marijuana been for for people here in in the city, and why do you think it's taken so long to get to this point in new York state and do you think it's fair to say that cuomo in the midst of this political turmoil he's in uh, the serious political trouble do you think that he's sort of embraced this more progressive version of marijuana reform because of the threat of you know impeachment looming looming over him
1: i don't know you know i'm i don't have that kind of access to him but you know i suspect that because he's you know politically weakened he decided that whatever he disagreed with in this bill. His office said, well, the differences really aren't that big, which might have been just, you know, covering, I don't know. But I suspect it's just something that he decided not to fight on, you know, on this. Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge toll. There's not a whole lot of people who actually go to prison for marijuana. They're generally you know, smugglers or growers. Uh, Federal laws, there's a five-year mandatory minimum for, uh, you know, 100 plants or more. What people have said it works as is it's an entry-level bust, Uh, you know, primarily in the city and around the country for young Black and Latino men. Uh, So it's an entry-level bust you know, which could cost them a job if you get arrested and you're two days in jail and you miss work and you can't call in or if you call in, oh, I got arrested for pot last night. Uh, I can't come into work today. <laughs> you know, that are you going <laughs> to, you're going to have a hard time keeping your job unless you're lucky. Uh, so it's. That kind of damage, but also it's an entry-level bust. So your name, your picture, your fingerprints are in the system. And then if you get arrested for something else, it's no longer a first offense. Oh, this guy's got priors. So that's you know the kind of it's kind of damage. It brings people into the criminal justice system, where you know maybe ninety-five percent you know won't do you know any other crime, but they you know get suffer for the five percent who do. And I'm just pulling those numbers out of the air, but you know the point is that a lot of innocent people get picked up along with, uh, you know, ones who would do something in the future.
0: Right, and, and, and you've yeah, before. I mean, there's
1: literally like, you know, at the height of the stop and frisk era. Uh, I mean, let me go back in history a bit more. Up until the mid 1990s, it was really a low priority for New York Police. Uh, they had plenty of other things to deal with, and in the mid '90s, really once crime dropped fairly significantly by like 1996 or so, the Giuliani administration decided to make possession of marijuana, especially possession of marijuana by young black and Latino men, a top priority for police. So, uh, the numbers went from like you know less than 10,000 arrests a year, maybe even less than you know, 3,000 to by 2,000, there were 70,000 arrests for possession of marijuana. Uh, and it continued at a pace of, you know, 30 40,000 a year, you know, peaked again at over 50,000 at the height of the Bloomberg stop and frisk policies. Uh, as you know, there's a figure about stop and frisk that I forget the exact number. They said only like, you know, one out of every, you know, 12 stops or one out of every eight stops, you know, actually led to an arrest. Uh, and I suspect that out of those arrests, probably half of them, you know, were for, were for pot. So the number of arrests made by random stop and frisk, you know, would have been, you know, even a smaller percentage without pot. So yeah, it was a huge part of that. And it's, why has it taken so long? I think one is that, you know, People saw the demographics of it, that how you know, blatantly racist the arrest policy was that you know, black people, Latinos were being arrested at a much higher rate than you know, white people or Asians. And that's a pattern that's all over the country. It's not just New York, but you know, a place like you know, Minneapolis, it was like black people were 10% of the population and 60% of those arrested for pot you know, Atlanta, which is heavily black, Chicago. It was a pattern that was all over the country. And then another thing, it's just like, I think it's one of these sort of like burst kind of phenomenon, like, you know, sexual harassment was a huge thing. I mean, you know, I'm 66 years old and I've known women, been friends with women for a long time. And I'd have a hard time thinking of, you know, any woman I know who's never complained about being sexually harassed, you know, why did it just, you know, become a huge thing, you know, in the last few years with me too. It's just the pressure built up to a point and it just cracked. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that happened with, you know, over the last 10 years with, you know, first with medical more like 25 years ago and then, you know, colorado and washington legalizing it in 2012 the sky didn't fall in and the one thing about steve uh marijuana is
0: yeah yeah we're we're gonna have to wrap up in about a minute or so Uh, but i I just wanted to ask you one more quick question before we have to go um uh we're gonna be talking more about unions in the in the next couple of segments what are the prospects that the marijuana industry uh, here in New York uh, may see some unionization? I understand it's happened in some states, and in other states it's been thwarted.
1: I uh, I think it's you know good for the larger operators. Uh, there's a labor peace clause in the bill that any applicant for a license has to stay neutral in you know if there's a union campaign. And for employers with 25 or more workers, the state has to give priority to the applicants that are union shops and or were built by union labor. So those are good. So. Unlike, say, some of the chains in a place like Illinois, you know, a pot retailer will not be allowed to have captive audience meetings to discourage people from joining the union uh, in New York, which has happened in Illinois. Right. Uh, you know, Colorado is, you know, very little, if any unionization, uh, California it's more. So in New York, you know, most of the medical, you know, there's only 10, 20 or so medical dispensaries, 20 or 30, and probably between a third and two thirds are unionized now. Okay. Uh, United Food commercial workers, retail workers, which is a uh, RWDSU, which is the union that's trying to organize Amazon. Yes, the main union in the state that's organizing them. So, I'd say the prospects are you know, pretty good for unionization in the state, but it you know may take a few
0: years. And probably be
1: the larger operators than the smaller ones.
0: Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But Stephen Wishney, a longtime reporter for the Independent, has covered uh, this long battle for marijuana legalization for many years. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. You bet. And uh, we'll be back after this short break, and uh, we'll pick up the conversation about Amazon and the, the struggle for unions uh, uh, with a reporter who's been following this uh, super closely, and it was recently down in uh, Alabama. we
3: the way
2: we're gonna roll right over him we're gonna roll the the union. union That was Roll the Union On by the Almanac Singers. I'm Julia Thomas with the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at indypendent.org. I'm joined by John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM.
0: It's great to be here with you this evening, uh, Julia. And before we continue with our second segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so To give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air, you can do so by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give number Two, WBAI.org. Again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. In particular, this is a really important time to become a WBAI member for as little as $25 a year. Of course, if you can give more, that's great. If you can become a WBAI buddy, for as little as ten dollars per month. And, and the reason it's important there's going to be a really crucial election later uh, later this year, uh, a referendum that will go a long ways to shape the future of WBAI and the Pacifica network. Uh, I can't electioneer on this show and encourage you people which side to support in this, but it's going to be a really crucial election and you have to be a WBAI member in good standing by April 7th. So one more week to uh, get that membership up to date if you're not already a a member. If you value shows like this and and all the other great programs on WBAI, you will wanna be able to participate in that referendum uh, later this summer. And um, so again, that phone number is 516-620-3602. Become a WBAI member today, if if not right this moment, as soon as this show is over.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, John. And one more time, that phone number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give2wbai.org. And now turning to our second segment about an epic labor struggle that has been unfolding in Bessemer, Alabama, where nearly 6,000 Amazon workers finished voting yesterday on whether to form a union. It would be the first Amazon union shop in the United States. The company has poured millions into trying to convince its workers to reject the union. Lauren Gurley is a labor reporter for Vice who has covered Amazon extensively. And she's also a former indie reporter. And she joins us now to tell us about what she's seen down in Bessemer and the struggle that she's been following. Uh, We've been also following her most recent work with great interest. Lauren, welcome to the show.
3: Hi. Good to see you, John, and thank you so much for having me, both of you. lot to be yeah. here.
2: Yeah. Uh Lauren, you were in Bessemer last week. Can you can you paint a scene for us and kind of tell us about what you saw and heard on the ground? And also, you know, tell us where things stand right now with the election at this moment, as far as we know, after um the voting period ended. Yeah, so I was
3: actually down in Bessemer, which is a suburb of Birmingham, um, in February and late February for a few days. Um, and basically the scene is that the warehouse pretty rural. Um, and so, and you know, workers commute to work. So the only spot that really organizers with the retail wholesale and department store, department store union had access to talk to these workers was on a small patch of public sidewalk outside of the warehouse. Um, and so, uh, that made it like, I mean, most of the organizing has been going on right there, which is pretty incredible. I think they had 3000 workers sign union authorization cards. Uh, like you said, this warehouse has 6,000, um, employees and it actually only opened, um, about exactly a year ago. Um, so this all, you know, um, sort of came together very quickly, like the momentum behind this union drive was like, uh, hasn't been seen anywhere else in the country ever before. So it's very historic. I think um, the vibe on the ground uh, is that people and members of the community are extremely excited. They have, I mean, if you go down to the union hall, it's just like a constant stream of reporters, politicians, activists, celebrities coming in to show their support um but you know it it doesn't necessarily transfer over to i don't know how how maybe all of the workers are feeling um you know it, it talking to some workers who maybe weren't super involved with the union drive i think there's a lot of fear that amazon's anti union tactics are really having had a strong effect on workers who um you know maybe didn't don't know what a union is or are young and um, maybe more impressionable to all of these tactics they're using. I'm happy to talk more about the tactics that they used. Um, it was a full blown, uh, you know, anti-union campaign. So now, um, the, there was mail-in voting that was about six weeks and that period ended yesterday. And right now, as we speak, um, organizers and, uh, Amazon representatives are counting ballots, um, at the National Labor Uh, relations board offices in Birmingham and so that process could take a really long time. It seems like first they're going to be counting the ballots and then there's going to be a public vote, uh, public watching period where they're, they're going to tally them. Um, so it, it, we, we probably won't know the results this week and we may not even know them next week. It, it, you know, Amazon is such a fiercely anti-union company and they're literally, you know, going to do whatever they can to stop this. So I imagine no matter what the result is, there's going to, there are going to be legal challenges on, 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 you know, either side, depending on how it goes. Um, So this could really stretch out for months into the summer. And
0: and could you talk about uh, some of the anti-union tactics that uh, Amazon uh, pursued? I mean, how how far (laughs) did they go?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. So they did all the classic things. They were sending workers like text messages every single day, telling them reasons not to vote for the union. Um, there are banners displayed all over the warehouse. Um, if you like the, I didn't go into the warehouse, I wasn't allowed in, but, uh, bathroom stalls are, you know, uh, are have like little signs on them explaining, you know, why they shouldn't vote for the union. They held these things called captive audience meetings, which are compulsory meetings um, where you have to sit for hours, listening to consultants talk about why you shouldn't vote for the union. I think some of the more, um, you know, Unheard of tactics that are really specific to this location and to show how far Amazon was willing to go is that they ended up changing the timer on a street light outside of the warehouse where that one small patch of sidewalk where organizers were, were doing their work to, to make it a lot harder. Um, for, I mean, the street light was sped up. And so now workers only had a few seconds to, to do their, give their whole speech and spiel, which I think really frustrated a lot of people. They also installed a USPS mailbox, um just feet away from the entrance of the building, uh, which workers, you know, say it felt like surveillance. They were texting workers, you should go vote from this mailbox. Well, this election, you know, the NLRB said it's mail-in voting, that it's not on-site voting. Yeah, Amazon is still, you know, trying to found ways to sort of get people to vote on site. Um, I think that could end up being challenged later on down the road as
2: something that was illegal. Um, those are the main things. Right. And I mean, amid all of these sort of, you know, anti-union efforts that in this anti-union campaign that Amazon was pushing, you know, Lauren, when you were down there, you spoke to a lot of organizers who you know, in the time leading up to this voting, you know, union election deadline were really intensely organized. And at the same time, they were dealing with a lot of obstacles. You know, I think uh, you mentioned in one of your articles talking about the challenges around geography in um, in Bessemer and just a lot of other things also amid, you know, the constraints of a pandemic that people were facing. Can you talk about sort of what, you know, what you heard about in terms of, you know, what were, what was the strategy of workers? How were they talking to each other? And, um, just sort of the significance of them, this feat, this, um, you know, that's never happened before. What is the significance of that?
3: Right. So a lot of the organizers is very cool. We're actually, um, Amazon, or sorry, not Amazon, we're actually unionized poultry workers from other parts of Alabama, like Tyson factories. And the union, um, got them, on a special part of their contract to come over and do a lot of the organizing. So, you know, rather than having organizers come from New York City, which is where the union is based, which also happened, it's like a lot of the people who are on the ground doing the work were part of the larger union community labor movement in Alabama. Um, I think one of the things you mentioned, like this happening in a rural place, especially during a pandemic that made it a lot harder was that, you know, usually during a union drive, you'll have um, uh, union organizers doing door knocking or, you know, having more access to workers. Um, but because of the pandemic, the union didn't do any door knocking. Um, they're not driving workers to the polls. Um, they're not doing, you know, a lot of the things that unions usually do to get workers to vote. Um, you know, for, for a good reason. Um, but I also think because of the geography, like you said, it's, it's rural, it's, it's, it's just like fields and pine forests. And, you know, there's, there aren't pedestrians really walking around outside the warehouse. So, and people live, you know, all over the place. People live in Tuscaloosa, which is a city pretty far to the Southwest. Um, people live in Birmingham. People are commuting from all over the place and the shifts are crazy. I mean, you know, the organizers, uh, the shift start. The first shift starts at three thirty a.m. The organizers are out there all day long, almost you know twenty four seven at dark and in the snow. I mean, it snowed this winter in Alabama, um, but yeah, it's it's like a it's it's just like they've been there constantly. They're they're all staying at a hotel, um, um, uh, Fairfield Inn, just a mile from the warehouse.
0: Right, and uh, Lauren, I, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit here. Um, any prediction on which side will win?
3: <laughs> um, I am not going to predict right now. I think what I will say is that it is going to be, and like there's no doubt that the union is the underdog here, right? Like I think if if the union pulls off a victory, um, you know, I mean, it's just like a huge uphill battle for the union. They're outnumbered or they're, you know, the Amazon outspent them. We don't have numbers, but I imagine by a lot. um, Amazon is, you know, willing to do whatever it can and has a lot more financial resources at its fingertips. Um, and I, I feel like that has unfortunately been very powerful. Um, so I, I'm not gonna, I, I guess I'm not gonna speculate as to who is going to win, cause I don't really have, I don't have that information. I don't have the, I'm sure they're all doing their polling and internal counts. Um, I think that uh, uh, both outcomes are possible, but I think that it would be, um, you know, pretty shocking and like a a big thing for the union to pull off a victory here. Just, just be perfectly honest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And and of course this uh, union drive is taking place in Alabama, one of the most conservative anti-union states in the country, though, of course, Birmingham does have a union history with the steel industry and the steel workers in the past, but uh, pivoting, you know, to look beyond Alabama, what do you, um, See is the impact of um, of the campaign in Bessemer on union organizing across the country, both in other Amazon warehouses and, and how the union movement might be stimulated in in general by this. And we also have a situation where we have a president for the first time in a very long time that's uh, come out and said, you know, emphatically that he supports unions.
3: Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great question. And I think it, even if they lose, um, but if they win, even more so that it w- could have like a very um, intense ripple effect. You know, workers are inspired to organize when they see other workers winning. Um, there's these things sort of happen in waves. Um, during the pandemic, I will say uh, there has been organizing at Amazon warehouses across the United States in sort of an unprecedented way. People are, you know, we're very upset and rightly so about um, Jeff Bezos uh, making a hundred billion dollars while their Amazon has cut, cut off their hazard pay. They cut off their $2 an hour hazard pay. They cut off all these little, Perks And, you know, that that workers were getting because of because of the pandemic. Um, We saw walkouts in the Inland Empire in California and Chicago and Staten Island in New York City. Um, And and, you know, people engaging in sick outs, petition drives, all sorts of things that, you know, really were pretty. I should mention also workers in in Minnesota, Somali workers in the Twin Cities were very active. Um, And before the pandemic, that was pretty rare. Um, Now that you have, meanwhile, these Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama organizing, I think that creates even more momentum and the union has had thousands of people reach out workers reach out to them expressing interest in unionizing since this drive started so I think Either direction the election goes, this is already having a huge effect, inspiring effect on workers for these large retailers like Amazon, not just Amazon. So you have like Target isn't unionized, Walmart isn't unionized, Costco isn't unionized. None of the big box stores or most of the big box stores are not unionized. Um, and so I think it could have a very big effect there. But, you know, the, the labor movement, despite enthusiasm from, from, you know, the leftist community is really still in like sharp decline. So, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, this could, you know, potentially, um, you know, sort of shape the future of the labor movement too. And sort of, yeah.
2: Yeah, right. And Lauren, I mean, he, taking things in looking at uh, the organizing of Amazon workers here in New York, um, last year at the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was a work stoppage and uh, Chris Smalls, who had worked at Amazon for five years, was fired shortly after helping to organize this. And uh, we have a clip here from him that we're going to play, sort of speaking to uh, the significance of that time and also his his and other workers standing in solidarity with the union drive in Alabama.
4: In solidarity with the workers of Bessemer. Uh, One year to the day of my firing out here last year, I was protesting on health and safety concerns. And this year I'm back with my organization, TCOEW, the Congress of Essential Workers, full of Amazon employees, former or current, and we're
0: still
2: out there fighting that good fight to unionize all across the nation. Lauren, your comments and sort of thinking about this, you know, this moment uh, last year, um, the, you know, the backlash from Amazon and sort of what that solidarity means now. And of course, you know, the challenges ahead. Yeah,
3: um, I mean, during the pandemic, there have been so many workers like Chris Smalls who have protested and staged walkouts and been retaliated, retaliated against, fired, um, sort of for, for, uh, their union activity, which is, um, illegal. Although I don't think, um, Chris Smalls' uh, case I'm not sure what happened with it, I, but there are so many other cases where workers um, in the NLRB did an investigation and found out that, that what happened was illegal. And so I think, um, you know, going forward, what's really important um, for people who don't know about the PRO Act, which is just passed the House, but is now sitting in Senate, is, um, you know, a, a set of laws that would really uh, make it a lot easier for workers in the United States to join unions and workers who are Retaliated against like Chris Malls, um, to, to, uh, for, for them to receive justice and for, for these companies to actually face real penalties for, for doing those sorts of things. Um, so I think that's definitely something that I'm keeping an eye on, um, and that I think is really important. And, you know, yeah, I mean, Chris Malls, um, really, uh, sort of, um, inspired in the way that Amazon what's going on in Alabama did uh, inspired a lot of workers um around the country to stage protests at their warehouses. And I just don't, I don't see that slowing down because even though the pandemic is sort of coming to maybe to closer to an end as people are getting vaccinated, um, I think that at least talking to workers, there is a lot of anger. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of um There's a sense that, uh, you know, things are very dire. And so workers are willing to speak out in a way that they weren't before this happened.
2: Right. And uh, I mean, thinking about this sort of, um, you know, there is this inspiration and sort of nationwide movement and uh, enthusiasm around union drives. But at the same time, there still is this sort of, um, hesitancy of the broader, you know, American public around unions, you know, only 65% of Americans support union unions now, but, um, which is an increase from sort of the, the, the de- decrease in the decades, um, uh, in the late decades of the 20th century. But now only 10% of workers are in a union. Um, your, your comment on that statistic.
3: Yeah. I think, I mean, I would say that the 65 65- Approval rating unions have is, I mean, it is, I think it's a 23 year high. I think there's a very big disconnect here. 65% of workers maybe want to be in unions, but only 10% are. Um, you know I think it's worth asking you know it's it's maybe not that workers have negative feelings towards unions but the laws themselves that make it so difficult for people to unionize um you know the nLr the nLra the national labor relations Act of nineteen thirty six um, gives workers the right to to form unions and to act to engage in concerted activity uh free of retaliation but really they're just it's it's just such a weak law and there have been so much there has been so much gutting of labor laws in this country that were already sort of weak um that i think that uh you know what's really preventing people is a sense that you know the the laws are stacked against them but also there's just sort of a feeling that like even if i wanted to unionize it would be such a hard task because you're up against an employer who can retaliate against you and the and the biggest Sort of penalty for them is probably just like, I don't know, it's like literally a slap on the wrist. They're very, the, most of the times employers don't get fined for things like this. Maybe it's a bad, bad, uh, bad news, um, sorry, bad like media coverage, but I think that's really about it. Um,
2: Right. Well, Lauren, I think we'll have to leave it there, but thanks so much, Lauren Gurley, labor reporter for Vice. Thank you for joining us today. Um, and next we'll be looking at, um, the, the strike of Columbia graduate student workers up in Morningside Heights. And again, really you're thinking.
0: That was Capitalist Blues by Layla McCullough, and you're listening to WBAI Radio 99.5 FM here in New York. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, along with my colleague, Julia Thomas. And then the final few minutes of this evening's show, we're going to talk with uh, Colleen Boblitz, a PhD candidate in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department at Columbia University and a member of the Graduate Workers' Graduate Workers of Columbia Union. Thousands of students with the Graduate Workers of Columbia have been on strike since March 15 over demands for higher pay, expanded health care provisions, and workplace protections. The strike of an estimated 3,000 research and teaching assistant comes after two years of stalled negotiations with the university over the union's first contract. Colleen, thank you for joining us on, on the show tonight.
4: Thanks so much
0: for having me. Right. Unfortunately, we have just a few minutes here, but can you uh, fill us in a little bit more on on where the strike stands and the the solidarity you're getting both from students, uh, faculty, and other members of the community?
4: Sure. So, um, so we saw, you know, some movement from Columbia just before our strike started. Um, we had a really successful strike, you know, back in 2018. And I think that they, you know, were trying to avoid something similar happening here. Um, but unfortunately, you know, what we saw from the university wasn't, wasn't quite enough. Um, some of our key demands from this strike have included, um, for example, recourse, uh, for harassment and discrimination in our workplace. Um, also access to fair wages. Um, while we've been bargaining, the university uh, canceled our, our high coverage health insurance option. And so, and so we're fighting to be sure that students with chronic conditions have adequate support in their programs. Um, beyond that also, you know, the, the university is, is attempting to um, cut out you know, swaths of our, of our unit who are hourly workers. Um, and of course we want, we want them to have the same um, protections and benefits in the course of our contract. And last, you know, the university is essentially proposing, um, proposing a right to work language in our contract, which is um, unprecedented for other unions on campus. Um, and it's something that we, we really find unacceptable. Um, and, so, and so we've been on strike, you know, we're, we're in our third week now, but um, going strong certainly. And, you know, that's, that's in no small part. I and mean, many, many thanks to our, our community, um, we've we've received such an outpouring of support from you know students, from faculty, um, also from community members. Um, in particular, you know the academic community has really come together in a really exciting way um, to uh, to raise visibility around our strike, even even in a time where much of our our work is online. Um, and so you know we've we've heard from some really high profile speakers like um, like uh, New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James. Also, Stacey Lynch, um, who pulled out of an event recently um, because they, you know, were unwilling to cross our picket line, and, and we really appreciate that. And that, that adds that adds so much momentum to our campaign. Um, yeah, and so and so it's you know I think I think the strike itself is going really well. There's a lot of really good energy on the picket line, and you know, of course, you know there as well. We love to see um, we love to see support from folks who come out and join us. So so um, yeah.
2: Yeah, right. Um, and, and Colleen, could you talk about the, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the significance of the demand around third party arbitration? We have just a, just a couple minutes, but really briefly, if you can sort of explain why that's an important central demand.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for asking, Julia. So, um, so I am a research assistant at the university. Uh, so, my funding, as along with you know, um, close to half of uh, the workers in our union, comes from uh, research grants. And so, the way that works is generally our our you know our advisors, or professor, wins a grant, and um, as part of our program, you know, we basically are funded to work on that grant. Um, and so, and so what this means is that it puts us in sort of a structural situation where so much of our livelihood is dependent on essentially just this one person. Um, it's not, it's not super diffuse to where, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have, um, a really Really supportive advisor and a good relationship with her. Um, But for many people, if if they experience you know harassment or discrimination, in particular on the part of their advisor, um, those structural uh, power dynamics make it super difficult for people to report in in their workplace. Um, And so and so, what we're proposing essentially is an independent, neutral third party process um, that you know basically would put this um, this procedure outside of fully university managed channels. And we feel that's really important for achieving real recourse for victims of discrimination and harassment.
0: Right. And Colleen, we have about 10 seconds left here. Can you uh, just uh, give folks a uh, contact info if they want to find out more about your union in, in the, in the strike?
4: Sure. So our website is columbiagradunion.org.
0: Great. Well, sorry, we couldn't talk longer, but Colleen Boblitz, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening on the WBAI and uh, we wish you all the best with uh, with the strike and the continued solidarity from your community.
4: Thanks so much. I appreciate
0: that. You bet. All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up here in, in a moment. Again, a phone number to call to become a WBAI member, 516-620-3602. Again, 516-620-3602. You can also go to give number to WBAI.org. Uh, we'll, be ba- we'll, we'll be preempted next week, but we'll be back on Tuesday, April 13th at the same time. Thanks to Julia Thomas, also our producer, Amma Gagarian, and also Sue, uh, Sue Brisk out in the field uh, doing some reporting for us. And uh, we uh, look forward to again seeing you in two weeks. And uh, we'll exit now on the this uh, song from Nina Simone, You'll Never Walk Alone.